Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Gosh, it really starts to feel a bit like Christmas singing a carol, doesn't it? We started singing that. I thought, right, okay, we're on. It's Christmas time. We're singing a carol. Uh, Christmas is definitely in the in the air. I was thinking yesterday, it dawned on me that often um, when it comes to Christmas time, I feel like oh, the kids are the only ones that get to have fun, that get to experience joy anymore these days. Kids love it. They get all wrapped up in, in the lights and the carols and the fun and the cookies. But often for adults, it's just a bit of a stressful time of year, right? And we lose, you know, that Christmas feeling feeling that you get when you're a kid and then year after year it kind of fades away and as you become an adult you might get lucky if you get like a half a second glimpse of that Christmas feeling um, that that sort of fades away. It's really easy uh, to lose sight um, or lose the sense of joy of Christmas as an adult, isn't it? It's very easy. It gets covered over somewhere. Uh, This deep joy and the deep beauty of Christmas gets covered over by the lights and by the sparkle and by the presents. Um, And somewhere along the line, along the line, in all the busyness of this time of year, um, Christmas just seems to kind of feel less remarkable and less joyful and more just about candy canes and Santa. (laughs) And so beneath all of this, that Christmas can feel like it's about... Um, where, where's the deep joy? Where is the deep beauty? Is it, is it there or is Christmas just another holiday? Is it just another uh, reason um, to spend money, just another financial drain? Is it just another mark in the calendar? Is it just another reason to have to see the relatives that you try to avoid most of the year? <laughs> what is Christmas? I am convinced that there is a deep beauty and a, deep, and a profound joy to Christmas that if we would listen, it would call out celebration from us. It would call out joy from us. It might be a different joy to the joy you experience when you're a child, that Christmas feeling. It probably is a different, a different type of joy related, but different. And I'm convinced that if you catch just a glimpse of it, if you smell just a hint of it, that it has the potential to completely reorient the way that you experience life and God. So what we're going to do over the next three weeks uh, as we lead up to Christmas, we're going to pull the curtain back on why Christmas is so much more than just a holiday. And our prayer for you is that you would catch much more than a glimpse of that, just more, much more than just a glimpse and smell just more, much more than just a hint of it, that actually um, it would change your life when we see why Christmas is so much more than just another holiday. Uh, when, when I was 14, I got my ears pierced. Random little segue. When I was 14, I got my ears pierced, um, which is probably not such a big deal, apart from the fact that all of my friends already had their ears pierced way before the age of 14. But I had to wait because my parents said, no, you can't have your ears pierced until you turn 14. So diligent child that I was, I waited until I was 14 to have my ears pierced. Now, let me tell you that when the, when the exciting day came, when I actually got to get my ears pierced, I was elated. I was overjoyed that finally, after all these 14 long years of waiting, which was probably only one or two, let's be real, of waiting to get my ears pierced. After all of this waiting and all of this longing and all of this yearning, the the day finally came and I was overjoyed when what I had been waiting for was finally delivered, when when it was finally fulfilled. The joy, in other words, was greater uh, because of the waiting And I wonder if one of the reasons that we lose sight uh, of the magnitude of the joy of Christmas is because we've lost sight of the deep longing and the deep yearning and the deep waiting that characterises the lead up to it. 
the deeper the longing, then the more profound the joy is. You see, we try to identify, I think, with the joy without first identifying with the longing, with the waiting, which is what gives Christmas its joy. For those of you who have been through profound seasons of waiting, um, something that you've been waiting for and longing for with your whole being, you know how much more splendid it makes the joy when that thing is finally fulfilled, right? When you finally receive the thing that you have been waiting for, when it finally dawns in your life. One of my favourite writers, Sarah Bessie, puts it this way, the joy is made, more, is made more real, richer and deeper perhaps, because we longed for it with all our hearts for so many days. When it comes to Christmas, the more you identify with the longing of the lead up, the more you experience joy when Christmas finally dawns. And so if you pan the camera back from the Christmas story as we know it, you come to see it for what it truly is. It's not just a nice tale or a nice fable even set in isolation, but it's the incredible and joyful fulfilment of a longing that was set in motion more than 2,000 years earlier. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to pan the camera right back from the Christmas story that we're so familiar with so that we might experience again or even for the first time the waiting that makes its fulfilment so much more than just a holiday. Now we've heard the Christmas story and let's be honest, some of you might be thinking this sounds a little bit far-fetched. How an angel visits a Jewish teenage girl called Mary and tells her that she would conceive a baby by the Holy Spirit and he would be called the Son of God. How she and her fiancé Joseph travel to Bethlehem to take part in a Roman census, but they can't find a guest room because there are so many people in town because of the census. And so she has her baby in the stables and lays him in an animal trough. And how angels appear in the sky to shepherds praising God because of this great joy. And the shepherds then go and see this baby and then in turn also worship him and praise God because of this great joy. But you know, when you see how remarkable the backstory of the waiting and the longing and the anticipating is, not only does Christmas appear more beautiful, but you just might find that it seems a bit more believable as well. You see, the Christmas story doesn't begin with two people who can't find a place to have their baby. It actually begins with two people who are pretty sure they can't have a baby. It doesn't begin in Matthew or Luke. It begins uh, in Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And in Genesis, we're told that God speaks to a man called Abraham over 2,000 years before Jesus was born. And he promises him something so powerful that it still impacts us today over 2,000 years after Jesus was born. This is what he says. The Lord had said to Abram, who then is known as Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
Now, what do you think Abraham is, or Abram is thinking at that point? He's thinking, really? Are you sure? You want me to leave everything I know and you're going to make my name great? I'm pretty sure my name is going to be forgotten if I leave my, home, if I leave my hometown. How on earth is my name going to be made great? You're going to make me into a great nation um, and be a blessing in a world of violence and corruption. I don't know how you're going to do that. I don't have any children, but okay, all right, I'm going to do it. And God, you seem so sure that you're not going to be deterred. You're going to make this happen. You seem so determined. And you're saying that every people, every people group in the world will be better off because of me. And my nation, if I'm going to turn into a nation and my nation is going to bless all the other peoples. Nations in my day don't bless people, they enslave people, they plunder people, they conquer other peoples. And you're saying that I'm going to become a nation that will bless instead of conquer. But okay, so he believed God despite all the odds. He took God at his word and off they went. Now, the problem was, of course, that Abraham and Sarah were pretty sure that they couldn't have kids because of their age. They were um, 190, respectively, right? Okay, so you get the idea. (laughs) They were pretty sure they couldn't have kids. Uh, But they believed God, and sure enough, eventually they had a son called Isaac. But not everyone wasn't all that blessed (laughs) by the arrival of Isaac. First of all, he's born into a family, Abraham and Sarah, in which Abraham passes off his wife Sarah as his sister to the Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, So that's not really an awesome environment to be brought into. And then Isaac's younger son, Jacob, steals his older brother's firstborn status. And then Jacob's sons sell their brother Joseph as a slave This is this family, it's all shaping up to be very blessed, sells their brother Joseph as a slave and eventually the entire family migrates to Egypt where, sure enough, they become a nation. But they become a nation of slaves, so not very blessed. And not in a position to be blessing anybody else, let alone the whole world. And so God sends a deliverer. Do you know his name? Moses. He sends Moses. And if you know the story, when Moses is done and the people leave Egypt, the Egyptians are not feeling all that blessed (laughs) by the Israelite people, are they? Uh, By Abraham's descendants, they're not feeling all that blessed. And the people of Israel, even after they have left captivity in Egypt, they're not feeling so blessed when they're wandering in the desert either. They want to be back in captivity in Egypt because they're convinced that that was better than wandering around in the desert. Nobody's feeling very blessed. And so they make their way through the Red Sea when they leave Egypt and eventually into the promised land land, their new home, Canaan. And the people who lived there, the Canaanites, weren't feeling all that blessed either by the presence of Abraham's descendants. And so we're reading this story thinking, God, where, is, where are you going to come good on your promise? Really? They're going to be, this, this nation, they're going to be blessed and they're going to be in a position to bless the whole world? How are you going to make this happen? And so a thousand years go by. A thousand years after God's promise to Abraham. And sure enough, Abraham becomes a family. The family becomes a nation. And in time, the nation becomes a kingdom. The kingdom of Israel. Now, Israel has a series of kings. You might have heard of some of them. One of them was King David. He made a number of peace treaties with all the surrounding nations. And for Israel, for the first time, Israel is feared and respected by other nations. It's looking hopeful. Maybe God is going to come good on his promise at this point. David is followed by his son Solomon, King Solomon. He's he's so extraordinary in his wisdom that what he's able to do is expand the reach 
of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, and so there's people come from all far and wide, um, powerful people, kings and queens come far and wide to listen to his wisdom and be blessed by him. And for the first time, Israel is finally in a position to be a blessing to the rest of the world. They're wealthy, they're influential, and it seems like maybe God is about to deliver on his promise. And so what does Solomon do? Instead of blessing the nations, he marries their daughters and worships their gods. And in response, God keeps his promise. It's not the one that he made to Abraham, but it's the one that he made to Solomon when he said to him, If you forsake me and if you go after other gods, I will divide the nation and I will tear down the temple that you built in my name. And sure enough, after Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided and this once-off opportunity to be a blessing to all people is lost forever. So from this point on, Israel is divided. It has a divided economy, a divided military And there is chaos in both kingdoms for a hundred years. After 300 years, the northern kingdom, referred to as Israel at this point in the scriptures, is invaded by Assyria, who carts them off all over the Assyrian Empire. And basically, um, basically the northern kingdom, Israel, ceases to exist from that point on. And the story of the scriptures really focuses in on the southern kingdom, known as Judah, from that point. They're also on the verge of implosion and preparing to be invaded by Assyria. Things are not looking good. Basically, Israel can't even bless herself, (laughs) let alone anybody else, God's people or Judah. And so in the midst of this chaos and utter lost opportunity to be a blessing to the nations and coming back to this place where they can't even bless themselves, God speaks to a man called Isaiah. You may have heard his name, uh, who becomes God's prophet, God's mouthpiece uh, to his people. And the prophecy that he had has been preserved for us and included uh, in our Bibles. And it was read for us earlier by Richard. He says, I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, the non-Israelites, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God's saying, "Uh, I'm not done. Don't forget, I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to come good on my promise. But the Israelites, can you imagine what they're thinking? Be a light and bring salvation. Are you kidding? We can't even light up our own lives. You really think we're going to be able to do that? And sure enough, Assyria does invade. And Judah, the southern kingdom, becomes subordinate to to the Assyrian Empire for another 300 years. God, where are you? Have you forgotten us? What are you doing? What about your promise? Are you a good God? Are you a faithful God? And years later, again, the Babylonians break down the walls of Jerusalem and destroy the temple, just like God promised Solomon would happen. The best and the brightest are carted off to captivity. The people are utterly decimated, completely, completely destroyed. Where is the blessing that God promised? Where is the hope of being able to bless the whole world, anybody, let alone the whole world? Do you get a sense of this longing and this yearning in the people of Israel, this waiting for God to fulfill his promise? And in the midst of this this atmosphere in God's people being utterly decimated and utterly hopeless, God sends another prophet called Malachi. 
who again reaffirms God's promise. And through him, God says, my name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And really, the Israelites are just like God. Would you stop with the empty promises? It's been over a thousand years. Are you, do you really think that, um, and probably nearly 2,000 years by this point, are you, are you really still saying that you're still going to deliver on your promises? Your name will not be great. Who wants to worship a God who can't even look after his own people? Maybe the name of Zeus will be great. <laughs> not, the na- not your name, not the name of Yahweh, which was the name by which the Jewish people knew him and know him. Your name will be forgotten. (laughs) We have waited and waited and waited and you have not been able to do it. Eventually, Rome conquers the entire area and so the Roman occupation of Israel begins. And so while the descendants of Abraham had become a nation... The unbelievable, incoherent, impossible promise of God that all nations would be blessed by them and that they would be a light to the nations seems to end there. Things were as hopeless as they had ever been. It was game over. 2,000 years of longing to experience the blessing of God and have it run over to others, to the whole world, and it all came to nothing. And that's what makes the story of Christmas so remarkable. When things were as hopeless as they could be, when there seemed no way forward, when God's promise to Abraham was as out of reach as it could be, when nobody was expecting it, when, as the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the time had fully come, when God had everything exactly as he wanted it to be, God delivered on his promise. You see, the blessing of this light at Christmas was so powerful and expansive that God had been working behind the scenes to get the world ready to receive the blessing when he did deliver on his promise. Through the Roman occupation, he had established an expanding empire, exporting Greek and Roman culture and language so that people could understand the blessing when it dawned in their lives. There, was a, there were highway and seaport systems, the likes of which the world had never seen, that connected major population hubs of the civilised world so that this light, this message, this good news could travel freely and people would find out. So the whole nations might hear of this blessing, might experience this blessing. There was peace between the different civilised um, civilized nations that had been conquered by Rome so that this would be made possible. In other words, God had a system by which to get the world's attention with this light that was about to dawn in the world as he fulfilled his promise to make the Jews a light to all nations, that all peoples of the world would be blessed through them. 
He'd set it all up just as he wanted it to be. And when no one was expecting it, God sent the angel Gabriel to a Jewish teenage girl called Mary in Nazareth. And the story we are so familiar with goes like this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, King David that I talked about earlier. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Now, no one in this part of the world had believed that God was with them for a really long time. People had stopped believing that God was active, that he was trustworthy, that he cared. And yet here is this angel coming to this teenage girl saying, God is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, he goes on. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. Jacob being the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, where the whole story began. And here's the clincher. His kingdom will never end. In the end, God kept his incredible promise to Abraham through Jesus so that all nations would be blessed through Abraham that Israel would be a light to the Gentiles and that the Jewish God would be worshipped throughout the whole world. Two thousand years of yearning and longing and waiting and hoping for God to deliver on his promise. And at Christmas, when everything was set up in such a way that the world could receive this great blessing that was about to dawn in, in the world. We get to experience the joy of its fulfillment. You see, the deeper the yearning, the greater the joy. 2,000 years, that's a lot of yearning and waiting and hoping. That's why Christmas is such a time of great joy. And so is Christmas just another holiday? Is it just another mark on the religious calendar? Is it just another moment in time to get through? No, it is so much more. It's a time of deep joy because it's when we celebrate the God who comes good on his promises. It's when we remind ourselves that the God we worship is a God who is faithful and who comes good on his promises who is always at work behind the scenes, getting the world ready to receive his blessing. It reminds us that against all odds, ours is a God who is interested in you, in the world, who is active, who is trustworthy. He can be trusted in our world and with your life and with my life. He's the saviour of the world, of me in my world, and you in your world. 
I want to encourage you this morning if that, that if you are waiting, would you take heart that even when God seems silent, inactive and forgetful, that he's not. He's working behind the scenes in places and ways that you don't know about to prepare things for the way that he has planned them to be. Bringing all things together for good. Maybe you've waited so long that the longing has shaped your understanding of who you believe God to be. That God has become someone who is forgetful, who is inactive, who doesn't care. With this story this morning, this backstory to the Christmas story, lift your eyes again to who God is, to who he has shown himself to be, a God who is active, present, faithful, and who remembers you, who is always present in your world. If nothing else this morning, if that's you, would you take from this message the impression that when we pan the camera right back, we see the activity of a God who cares deeply, who hasn't forgotten you and who is still active. He is for you, he is with you and he loves you. My prayer is that that's something we can all hold on to this Christmas, no matter what season of life you are in. That we have a God who is with us, who is always at work behind the scenes for our good in ways that we can't even imagine. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.